Maybe you could just turn in your scriptures. We're not going to read to start, but have them open to Luke chapter 5. And we'll be referring uh, to the parable that's before us uh, uh, shortly. Jim, our brother Jim, last week introduced to us the uh, the series that we're engaging in, which is entitled The Parables of Jesus. And we are going to try and work through them somewhat chronologically uh, so that we pick up, as Jim mentioned last week, the phases and development uh, through Jesus' ministry on earth and see how that uh, those sequences of his uh, his speaking and in particular his use of parables uh, reflect what he was trying to do as the God of heaven and the divine Son of God came come into the world uh, to teach us and lead us uh, to God. Uh, he left us a very uh, big task this morning because it's a um, it's the first of the parables, so everyone's going to be watching to see if we follow what Jim taught and uh, uh, how he set the stage for us to uh, go through the parables and I trust in the Lord, that we will be able to uh, rely on him as we open our hearts and our minds to his word and to his spirit to lead us into the application of those uh, of the, these particular parables in our lives in this uh, day and age. Uh, my first slide is a picture of a freight train or two pictures of a freight train. And uh, there is a, 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 a rule in physics that talks about inertia. And uh, that is defined as uh, an object will continue moving at its current velocity until some force causes its speed or direction to change. Uh, the, roughly speaking, the mathematical expression of that force uh, of momentum is the mass of the, of the uh, entity and its, uh, and its speed, its velocity. When Jesus came into the world, he faced a huge momentum. And it was the momentum of the religious leaders of Judaism and how they had grown, uh, moved away from where God wanted his people to be. And they, as the leaders, had moved uh, the people away, including themselves, from what God intended uh, in the Old Testament times. Jim talked a little bit about the First Testament and the Second Testament. And we're going to be speaking about what we take from the First Testament through the mouth of Christ and apply it to us uh, today through this parable about newness. And uh, the Lord will help us uh, with, with those things. The second uh, slide I, I'm putting up is a somewhat humorous one, I guess. In the, in the 1990s, uh, there was this, this book was uh, floating around uh, executive circles and management was expected to read it and to apply it into their situations. Uh, and I was one of those that had to read this book and uh, we were facing a big uh, change, a necessary change at the kit operations. It's mine, uh, the mine was depleting, the speed of production was slowing down and Big changes were required, and so we read this book. It's the story of, of a, a, a couple of mice that have this source of cheese outside their little house. And in that story, there's the uh, gradual decrease of that cheese availability. And to make this long story very short, 
the story continues to, to uh, gauge the reaction of the individual mice to this loss of food source and how they, how they change. What I'm here to say this morning is that Jesus, in his coming, was the one who moved the cheese. He was trying to move the cheese on the religious leaders of Israel and bring a big change in their lives. And as we see in the principle of momentum, it took a great force to try and make that change. And Jesus, the divine creator of the universe and the the master teacher as the divine son of God, come to teach the people in part through parables. Uh, He came to disrupt their lives and make a a big impact on uh, on the history uh, of the human race. Uh, you know me and little pictures and charts. Uh, here's what I understood Jim to say last week, and he'll correct me, I'm sure, if I'm off track. But here we have Jesus, the teacher, and he's trying to reach the audience. And it's very important as we look at these various things that lead up to the parables where we hope to get time to talk about Uh, We need to see the context of the parables to truly understand what he is saying and not be like so many with his parables that, oh, I know what that means. We'll we'll take this as being the new thing we want to implement implement in the church. Yeah, you can do that, but let's just move through it slowly to see how that is to happen. So Jesus was trying to reach this audience. And in the case of the parable, he tells a story to illustrate what he's been saying to them. Uh, and, and a story which in the parable case is a, some, is a comparison. And he was trying to teach it in such a way that would bring extraordinary impact uh, on, the, on the audience. And from the audience, he was expecting as they listened to the parable that they would do one of uh, two things. They would get it, they would understand it and apply it, or they didn't get it, and his, his work was uh, rejected, in, in, in fact, by those who went down that course. So as we're listening to this this morning, let's work hard on being like the ones that got it. And the question for us is, do we get it? And how do we apply it to ourselves? Uh, this was the definition I had before that complicated one we got last week. I'm having some fun here. Uh, he said, the, uh, what was his name, uh, Dodd? He, was, uh, he taught, uh, gave us a very, the simplest of definitions, he said. I think mine's a little simpler. Short story, I say that with humility too. Short story or comparison to elicit an intended response by the hearers in their thought and in their action. And here we have Jesus this morning going to be giving us a couple of parables. And he's looking for an intended response by the audience. So don't go back to your moment of silence. Hang on tight as we uh, try to apply this to ourselves today. We're going to look through a couple of scriptures, and this is for the sake of context, and we're going to erase a little bit, and we'll try and do it in a way that pulls out of these selected uh, uh, contexts of our Lord's life and work up through His chronology Uh, to the two parables that are before us this morning, and one that's not called a parable, but is a comparison uh, type situation that Jesus uses to teach with. And and these verses are shown for your reference in Luke, and and it's also shown where they're recorded elsewhere in Scripture, and we're going to just work our way through those with a 
a little bit of a, a tracing of what God, through his son, was trying to do. The first one uh, I've selected out of the life of John the Baptist. And here I've entitled the purpose of John the Baptist being to prepare the way for the, the Messiah. And he is, John the Baptist here, is calling the people uh, to hear him and to prepare their hearts for the one that was promised from Old Testament times. And I'm only selecting one little piece out of this to see how some of the people in the audience responded. And I picked out the tax collector because the tax collector is, mentioned, or is the context, immediate context of the story uh, and parables of Jesus that we're going to consider shortly. Tax collectors also came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Now, it's a good point just to define who tax collectors were in that society. They were the CRA of the, of the time. But importantly, they were working for Rome. Secondly, they were Jewish people. Thirdly, they were taking excess money from the people to stuff in their own pockets along the trail of money uh, flowing to Rome. And they were despised by the common Jewish people because if they couldn't pay their taxes, they would pay them for them but charge them usurious rates of interest. In those days, it was probably a bit more than a couple of percent. So that's the tax collectors uh, that came to John and recognized immediately their sin before God in the way that they were treating their professional job and they uh, repented and uh, recognized that something better was to come uh, and the tax collectors was just one selection of people out of the audience uh, of John the Baptist's time. So now we uh, flip over to the next uh, call to himself as the one promised where Jesus presents himself to the people. And he says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 20, and he read before this from the book of Isaiah. Uh, and all of that book of Isaiah, he read for the purpose of identifying himself as the one who was promised in the Old Testament prophecies. And hear what Jesus said. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he's in the synagogue, uh, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is presenting to himself and calling the people to himself as the one promised in Old Testament times. How did they respond? Everyone in the synagogue in Nazareth heard it and all, as a result, spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Sounds all positive. Jesus came to stop the freight train, move them to the different track and bring them to himself. Wonderful story so far. This is how the story unfolds through the uh, series of the parallels we're going to consider. And it starts to change now. He very quickly was, re, was rejected by his people in his own uh, hometown of Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4 and verse 24 is where the story comes from and how it originates. But he tells the people that he, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And he quotes two prophets who came to give the message of God to a nation who had rejected God. And he went to 
people of other nations to receive his message in the case of Elijah and Elisha. So he's telling the people of Nazareth, his home, the people who he had known for 30 years, I'm, I'm come here to give you a message and you were amazed at what I spoke about, but you don't really get it. And you are going to reject me because I am the one promised in the Old Testament, like the Old Testament prophets I have been sent. And remember, they were, they were thinking, the Jewish people were thinking that it would be someone in the name of Elijah who would come as the Messiah. And here he's talking about it. And what did the audience do? All the people in the Nazareth synagogue were furious when they heard this. The response, they got up, they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Here's the reaction of the call by the God of heaven through his divine son to come to him as the one promised in the Old Testament times and they reject him. Remember the words of John chapter 1. He came unto his own. And his own accepted him with open arms and praised and glorified him. Did I get it wrong, Peggy? I heard her. And what happened? He came unto his own. And his own received him not. Not only does he present himself to them. But he starts to put the details behind that as we move through, uh, through these examples. The next thing he claims to them is that he is the divine redeemer. I say the next thing. I am selective in my, my choices of these verses that we're leading up to, uh, to our parables. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. This is the story of the... A bit like what we've been thinking about this morning already is the... the Jesus finding one person in the middle of the big crowd. Remember the Old Testament story of the 99 and one sheep wandered away and Jesus went and found that one sheep. He found the one thing, us, is what we were thinking about at communion. Each of us have been found, have been found by him, some, some seeking, some not seeking so much, but his hand was on us and we came to him and for some uh, inexplicable reason, he had his hand on your life, on my life, and he has it today to draw us to himself. And that's what exactly what he was trying to do here. Four men grab a paralytic from with uh, four, four ends of the, of the uh, stretcher, the mat. They can't get him into the building because all the uppity-ups were in there and trying to hear the pre-speaking. The, the pre and crowds were gathered from all over Judea, if you read the story carefully from Jerusalem, from Judea, from, from uh, Galilee, and had come to hear him uh, speak. So they blocked the people from being able to come to him uh, for the help they needed. So these committed people who knew that Jesus could heal lifted him up on the roof, down through the tile, into the, into the very pre- foot, st- uh, foot uh, area where Jesus was standing, I'm trying to say, and he healed them. And as Dr. Luke says, and the power of God to heal was present with him that day. Of course, it's, it's there all the time. So the audience, what happens? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were shoved out of the way to uh, see this man heal began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? He's calling them to himself as the divine redeemer. The only one who could forgive sins is God. And that's what the claim he was putting forward uh, to the folks. 
Why are you thinking these things in your hearts, Jesus said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. And everyone was amazed. Here we have this positive thing for the time being, and gave praise to God, and they were filled with awe. So not only did Jesus call the people to himself as their redeemer, but they, he was calling them, himself to, uh, calling them to himself as the one who was to be believed and followed. You can see the progression. Salvation, following, uh, and, and uh, believing and following. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And he said to him directly, follow me. Jesus said to him, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi held a great party, a great crowd of tax collectors, and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours uh, go on eating, drinking, and partying. Luke chapter 5 and 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began drum, grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Not quite a parable, maybe. doesn't matter. It's a comparison that he is trying to infuse into their minds to see that he wasn't just giving a, a meaningless story over here as an illustration. He was trying to direct them to the point he's making that you are self-righteous. You think you don't need me. You think you don't need a Savior. You think you don't need a Redeemer. You think you don't need one to follow. You're following the traditions of your past. You're turning the people away from, from who God is and what He wants to be, uh, have within His people. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And keep in mind, he called all sinners to repentance. He's not singling out anyone in particular by group. Whosoever will come to me shall be saved by me. Whosoever may come, I will, I will, I will accept. But here we see this building uh, adversity from the, the leadership of his people again. And they are being proclaimed by Jesus as those who are thinking that they are okay, that they, what they are is earning this, the uh, satisfaction of God, and they want their freight train to continue on that same track. He calls the, the people to himself also as the one who brings the new. And I put this again in, in brackets here, because it's very important for us in, in, in terms of interpretation to not think that he is bringing a new thing totally to his people. He's bringing a new thing to them because the people have moved. Do you get the distinction? And he is bringing them something new to them. And he's trying to get it through their, their heads and stop their freight train and get them to figure out that he's the one who's move, trying to move their position into a position of receiving himself. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, 
You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with us, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. I I just want to uh, point out what Jesus was doing with the people who understood the context of his stories and his uh, parables. I'm going to refer us over to Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like you to hear how the Old Testament people knew this picture of God and his people as a husband to a bride. In the Old Testament, it's full of this model, the analogy that God taught that he was the one who wanted a people to himself, like a bride to a husband, to be cherished, to be loved, to be part of the unity that God was trying to create between the people he made and himself. And he uses this image of the, of the human marriage. Listen to Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 5, which would have been very familiar to all those who read from these scrolls every Sabbath day. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He, he is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young. Only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you, I will bring you back. And we could read more. But you see, they were, this is one example of many that used this analogy by God through the prophets of how God wanted to be the husband of his bride, his people, his Old Testament people, and in the New Testament, uh, the, the, uh, in the church age, his his uh, church people. So now we come to the parables at 10 minutes to 12. The context is just so important, though, to understand what, to interpret this par- parable, it's important to see the context, to see what, what, in what setting and to what audience he was trying to teach these things and interrupt their, their current path. And he told them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Any seamstresses here? Repairers of clothing uh, have any feel for this? Oh, no. When, we, when our clothes get old, we throw it out. But it, it is, I just point that out because as I thought about it, I do I really know what they're saying here? I don't know what's, what uh, kind of uh, cloth they used and what this is all about. That's going to be true for a lot of the parables that we study. And it's extremely important as we understand them to reach back and look into what they were dealing with and was familiar to them. And the, those examples are what Jesus used to try and get through to them. So we have a little bit of work to do in these parables to try and understand the the Jesus' audience and the context to see what he was teaching before we seek to apply it to ourselves. Here's, uh, here's the other example he uses to, to, uh, for the same parable series. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine, and this is a key sentence here, And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. So those are the two parables. 
and we're going to look at them together. Just by way of a quick review, we have a question of the Pharisees, the leadership of Israel at the time. We heard the question, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? His first answer was, I am there as the doctor to the sick. I have come to call the sinners to repentance. I have not come uh, to call the, the righteous. And by that, we should interpret that as I have not come to call the self-righteous to repentance because you're not going to turn and accept as we've already seen. Then again, the question comes up uh, from the Pharisees. Why do your followers not fast and pray like us? And Jesus turns to this uh, this analogy of the bridegroom and the bride. And it says, should the sons of the bridegroom fast while preparing together for the wedding feast? So this was much more than just an analogy over there that sounds interesting. Jesus was saying, I have come as the divine son of God to call a people to myself. I am the bridegroom. And you're criticizing the people who come to me, he says to the scribes and Pharisees. You are saying they're not holding to the law. They are not conforming to our, tradi- to our traditions. You are wrong, Jesus, in what you're trying to do and look at your misleading these people. And Jesus says, just a minute. You are chastising the ones, the people who are turning to me, the God of heaven. And, and I am seeking to teach them and have them follow me. And you, the, the people of Israel's leader, who is supposed to recognize me, are trying to make me uh, behave differently towards the people I'm calling. It's a ridiculous situation, isn't it? It's easy for us to see how misled the, the scribes and Pharisees and the nation had become that brought Jesus down to earth to save them and to save us. It's uh, just a, a tremendously rich thing here. So the people, the followers, are the sons of the bridegroom or the attendants of the bridegroom in the, in the Israeli marriage. They're not just the people uh, around. They're his, they're his followers. They're his attendants. They are there to be with me and help me in the work that I'm, uh, I am trying to achieve. And then in support of those questions, those two questions, Jesus quotes these parables. We're talking about an old garment, a new garment, old wineskins, and new wineskins. And we're not just talking about patching up an old cloth. Jesus' fundamental teaching is, I am here to dress you in new clothing. We're throwing away this old stuff that has not worked, not, not in total, but in part. That's a more complex discussion. But what you have made it is old and must be disposed of. And what I am bringing is new clothing. And I have not come to patch a little of the new over the whole of the old. And he's trying to get them to think, to see, uh-oh. He's calling us the old. He's trying to patch himself on us a little bit. And, he, and they're asking him to do a little bit of the old over the over their holes in in what he points out about them. But Jesus says, I have not come to patch with a little of the new over the hole in the old. The new would have a hole in it. The old hole would be torn apart as the new patch would tear the old. Therefore, I am here to bring you new clothing. Is the fundamental thing, basic thing he's telling them. Clear? Comes to old wine and new wineskins. And this is a very nice picture of a new, 
new Jesus time bottle of uh, a bottle of grape juice or wine. I'm not going to go into that aspect of this at all. That's not the point. No one would put the new in the old wineskin bottles. The old one would be torn apart and the new wine would be lost. New wine must be put in new wineskins. What I have to offer, the people who I'm trying to bring to myself across the whole world, is new wine. And that can't be held in the old wineskins of your leadership. It has to be, that has to be done away and the new wine uh, is what we are trying to bring to, what, what I am trying to bring to you. So in the last uh, minute or two, how do we apply this to ourselves? And I've built another Donaldson chart here to help us uh, just summarize it in something you can go back to and, and, uh, and, and look at. Self-righteous leadership. They need to acknowledge their sin and turn to him for repentance at that time. For us, if our reliance is on self and self-righteousness before God, we too then must repent and turn to Jesus for his righteousness. Jesus' true followers are helping him to prepare for true fellowship with God. Then, today, our work is to follow him as our Savior, our Teacher, and our Lord. Fast when Jesus leaves them, Jesus taught them. Don't fast while I'm still with you. Fasting has a place in the new, and that could be a long uh, discussion in the value of fasting, but that's what Jesus taught. They need to acknowledge their sin and return to him for repentance then, today. Self-righteousness is an ongoing threat for Christians. We come to church, we dress up, we think we're doing all the right things, but it's not in our hearts and in our minds to be in close relationship with our beloved Lord. We must guard against self-righteousness. Their leadership must yield to the bridegroom who came to them, and we need to recognize the Lord as the husband, and live as his cherished bride. Patching me over what you are will not work. Beware of patching from the world to the church. We need to follow as the people of God a direct relationship with our Lord and Savior and live, to, live for him as his cherished bride and not import the world uh, uh, to the church. I have come back, we must stop, I have come to bring back the new to my people, look to him as our direct leader. The old leadership must cease for the new joy to come, weed out any legalism in us, self-reliance and worldly wisdom. And just that, as that train needs to stop, and easy it is not, easy it is not to stop, that freight train took well over a mile to stop uh, in, in real life, their conclusion that ours is better must Stop. I've come to bring the refreshing of direct fellowship with me. We are to live in the appreciation of the joys and the blessing and the fruition, the fruit bearing that comes only from our Lord. So, first parable. I trust we've uh, tried to cover the aspects of it that helps us to apply these things to our lives today and to know that Jesus came to call us. He came to present himself to us, first as our Savior, that uh, is where salvation is found in him by trusting in him, believing in him, and accepting him into our hearts as, as Savior. And then he wants us to live our lives following him, believing in him, learning from him, 
And then together as a corporate body, his church, live together in the manner that uh, demonstrates to, to all around that God loves us and he loves the whole world and he wants to bring everyone to himself to live for, with him as the cherished bride. I apologize for the musicians. Do we have one last song? And maybe David would uh, close our meeting in prayer. Join with us in singing uh, Build Your Kingdom here as we think about what's new, the, the kingdom of the Lord that he announced is a new thing that's building now in our world as he as we seek to follow him, as Phil's been saying. Uh, it's a totally different value system than the world has. It's his new kingdom. Please stand. Come set your rule and reign in all your hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil while we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very soul. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. Seek your kingdom first. We hunger and we thirst. Refuse to waste our lives for your joy and pride. To see the captive hearts
Lord, as we've been thinking about this new thing that you want to do in our lives and in our community, we pray that you would help us to be followers of you, to put on those new garments that you want to clothe us in, to wear them and to show the world of the uh, new thing that you're doing in us. We pray in his name. Amen.